So I want to ask you a question this morning. Uh, can a Christian ever get depressed? No. No. It's a silly question, right? To ask if a Christian can ever be depressed? Yeah, of course, of course we can. Uh, almost every one of us uh, at one time or another has experienced a period of sadness. Uh, now most people get over it with a little time, but for some of us, those feelings remain, which then presents a secondary difficulty because the next obvious question becomes based on all that we know about God and his, his love for us and his promises. Uh, is it wrong for a Christian to be depressed? Is it wrong? Uh, and to answer that question, we're going to turn to uh, our attention again to the book of Psalms that we've been following through, and in particular this week, Psalm 6, which gives us a picture of a man so tormented that he floods his bed with tears. And just by way of background, the original context of this psalm is generally agreed to be that of uh, King David's adultery with Bathsheba. You remember the story? Uh, remember, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite from 2 Samuel 11. Uh, it's the story of when Bathsheba became pregnant as a result of uh, her liaison with David. Uh, and at which point, remember, David tried to arrange it so it would look like Uriah was the father. But when that didn't work out, then he decided to arrange it so Uriah could be killed in battle and he could marry Bathsheba. And now, at the writing of this psalm, uh, perhaps Bathsheba has given birth to that baby and the prophet Nathan comes into the royal palace with a message from the Lord. And so if you look at 2 Samuel, if you're following along in your Bibles, 2 Samuel 12, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Now, to David's credit, he, he didn't try to defend himself. He confesses his guilt, and the, the story continues. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And so David of course, was heartbroken, and he's praying and, and asking God for forgiveness and for restoration, and perhaps uh, the inspiration for this psalm is him uh, perhaps pleading at the bedside of this dying son whose brief life he knows uh, is soon to be ended. So we're going to look in our continuing look through the psalms at Psalm 6, uh, which superscription reads, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shimonith, a psalm of David. And the psalmist writes, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? 
I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now this Psalm 6 that we're looking at is the first of what's been called seven penitential psalms, psalms of confession and humility before God. And the superscription, as you saw, addresses it to the choir master. Now that would have been like Pastor John, right? He would have been the Levite who directed the orchestra of the temple. And uh, because music was uh, always an accompaniment to the daily sacrifices, he would have been one of the chief conductors of the divine service. Uh, And the notations here tell that conductor that this psalm was written to be sung with accompaniment by stringed instruments, uh, particularly with the the shimonith that uh, some of our brothers and sisters in commentaries have identified as an eight-stringed harp. And so that information in that introduction would have had value to the original audience and to that conductor who received its sheet music. Uh, But just like everything else in God's sacred word, there are multiple layers of meaning in the text because the the opening address can also be translated not just as to the choir director, uh, but also actually to the chief musician, uh, to the creator of music himself. And so some Commentators have taken that to mean that David is writing to the Lord himself as he makes an agonizing plea in the midst of his full-blown depression. And so I started out by asking you, uh, if a Christian can ever get depressed, and if they can, is it wrong? And I think it's important to take a look at that because depression is a highly charged issue among Christians today. Uh, In fact, some groups have even declared it to be a sin. And their line of of thinking is that depression reveals a lack of faith in God's promises. Uh, And they say that, well, you know, if we know that God is good and that God is loving and that we are secure in Him, what would there ever be to be depressed about? Now, the flip side of that is others who flatly declare that depression is a medical issue. And all that depression is, is a result of chemical imbalances in the brain. So uh, depression is no more right or wrong than having the flu. And then, of course, there are those in the middle who aren't really sure what this ugly beast of depression is uh, within that spectrum, believing that a lack of faith seems somewhat related. Uh, But so do brain chemicals. And, of course, the net result of all of that is uh, that the depressed Christian is left to feel guilty, defensive, uh, confused, lost, uh, or, or quite simply just too depressed to even bother to care what the church teaches on the subject. And so it's no wonder that Christians often spiral into tremendous guilt over feeling or being depressed. They feel like they've let down both God and, and their families, and so the secrecy of being depressed becomes a priority because uh, they don't want other Christians to know what's going on. But today in God's providence, whether you're here or or listening online, uh, it's time to end the guilty feelings and to deal with our depression. And the first way to do that is to let you know uh, that if you're depressed today, you're not alone. Uh, Now, of course, the Bible doesn't 
necessarily use the word depression except in a few translations of particular verses. Uh, but it's often referenced by similar words like downcast, brokenhearted, troubled, miserable, despairing, uh, mourning, among others. And throughout the word, there are a number of stories about godly, influential men and women who struggled and battled through dark times of depression uh, in the same way uh, that many of us find ourselves struggling today. Think of the prophet Elijah, uh, for instance, who was discouraged and, and weary and afraid, and even after a great spiritual victory over the prophets of Baal, this mighty man of God uh, ran for his life to get as far away as he could from the threats of one woman, Queen Jezebel. He ran into the desert where he sat down and prayed, uh, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. How about Jonah? If you remember, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to the people there, but he fled as far away as he could. Uh, he didn't want to have any part in seeing God forgive a group of people that he hated. Uh, and so then after a storm at sea and being swallowed by a great fish and then being saved and given a second chance, he obeys. And he preached God's message to the people of Nineveh. And in God's mercy and sovereignty, he reached out to the people there. They turned to him. But instead of rejoicing, Jonah got mad. And he threw a tantrum. In Jonah chapter 4, uh, it tells us this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. How about poor old Job? He suffered through great loss and devastation and physical illness. Uh, and this righteous man of God lost literally everything. In fact, uh, so great was his suffering and heartache, even his own wife came to him and said, you should just curse God and die. And though Job maintained his faithfulness to God throughout his life, he still struggled deeply through the trenches of pain and heartache. Uh, in Job 3.11, he says, Why didn't I die at birth? Just come out of the womb and expire. So I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. And now my life seeps away. Depression haunts my days. At night my bones are filled with pain and it gnaws at me relentlessly. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wrestled with great loneliness and feelings of defeat and insecurity. And in Jeremiah 20, 18, he said, Why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble and sorrow and shame. And then, of course, there's David today in Psalm 6 who says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? David says, uh, how long am I going to feel like uh, somebody's ripped my heart out of my body and tramped on it and then put it back in? Uh, how long will I have to fight just to make it through another day? How long until I see any light at the end of this tunnel that I've been living in? How long, Lord? How long? You know, one of the most profoundly comforting things about Scripture is how it reveals God's compassion for us even when we're impatient and waiting for it. 
You know, God knows that his timing can appear slow to us. He knows at times we feel like we have been forgotten by him and that he's hiding his face from us. He knows it can feel like he's taking too long. And so in the raw poetry of Psalm 6, he gives us permission to ask him, Lord, how long is this going to last? How long is this going to last? If you remember from last week, we were talking about Martin Luther, and I told you that illustration was going to lead into this week's message. And, you know, we've been considering his faith over beginning last year in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and so on talking about his faith, a faith that we talk about and, and read about and hear lectures about until sometimes we imagine that he is this larger-than-life saint who was uh, as courageous and indomitable as that bronze statue of him uh, on a granite pedestal in Eisleben. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't always the case. On April 22nd of 1527, a dizzy spell forced Luther to stop preaching right in the middle of one of his sermons. By that point, it had been 10 years now since the publishing of his 95 Theses against the abuses of the Roman Church, and Luther had been continuously buffeted by political and theological storms, and uh, quite honestly, at many, many times, he had been uh, in actual danger of his life, and because of that, he suffered severe depression. On uh, July 6th of that same year, as friends arrived at the Luther household for dinner, he felt uh, intense buzzing in his ear, so intense that he went to lie down, but he was too agitated to rest. Uh, and then he got cold, so cold that nothing seemed to warm him up, and he was convinced that he had actually seen his last night on earth. Now, thankfully, though, uh, with the doctor's help, Luther partially regained his strength, but depression uh, and illness overcame him again all through that year. It, it surfaced again in August, in September, late December. And looking back on one of those episodes, he wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon, he said, I spent on one occasion more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still tremble. I was left feeling completely abandoned by Christ and I labored under vacillations and storms of depression and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of my dear friends, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. You know, meanwhile, in that same year, the plague erupted in Wittenberg, and as fear spread of the plague, so did a lot of the people. Uh, the fact the plague spread so quickly that the elector of Saxony closed the university there uh, and ordered Luther and his family to leave, but he refused. Uh, and even though his wife was pregnant, uh, they made their house into a makeshift hospital, insisting it was the church's responsibility to care for the sick and the dying. But you know, it also... Uh, had the effect of sending Luther into uh, a state that some have called in different folks a, a dark night of the soul. Uh, it's a phrase that comes from a, a short poem by St. John of the Cross, who was a contemporary of Luther's. Uh, an eight stands a poem about the soul's journey through times of testing and, and, and agony that can be accompanied by fear, uncertainty, doubts about God, but how on the other side is, is Christ's glory and serenity. Uh, it's just for us that dark valley in between that's so hard to face, right? Because that dark night is not always pleasant. And, and that same malady uh, provoked David to write, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. 
It grows weak because of all my foes. And, you know, words like those both from David and, and from Luther, these two giants of the faith, and, and really both of them paragons of manhood, uh, prove that depression is real. And it can be severe. Uh, and we may ask, honestly, how a person of faith could experience such spiritual lows, but, you know, whatever provokes it, it doesn't take away from its reality. Uh, our faith is not always constant. It's not always moving forward. It's mobile. It vacillates from time. The Bible says we move from faith to faith. But, you know, in between, we may experience periods of doubt. When we cry out, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And we may also think that the dark night of the soul is something completely incompatible with the fruits of the Spirit that we talk about so much. Not only with the fruit of joy, but uh, of faith. You know, we may ask how... Once the Holy Spirit floods our hearts with those gifts, how we can ever have room for depression. And that's why it's important for us to make the distinction between spiritual fruit and just mental happiness. Right? You see, a Christian can have joy in his heart while at the same time still having depression in his head. I'll give you a New Testament example. In writing to the Corinthians in his letter, uh, Paul talks about the importance of preaching and of communicating the gospel uh, but then in the midst of that, he reminds the church that the treasure that we have from God uh, is treasure that isn't contained in vessels of solid gold or solid silver, but it's what the apostle calls jars of clay. For that reason, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Because you see, in this passage, Paul says, our depression may be profound, but it's not permanent. And brothers and sisters, it's not fatal. Right? Notice, uh, the Apostle Paul describes our condition in a variety of ways. He says, we're afflicted, uh, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. And those are powerful images that describe the conflict that Christians endure. But in every place he also describes this phenomena, he describes its limits as well. He says we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. He said we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, you got it, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And we need to ask God to help us take those things into our hearts and into our minds. And that's why Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do you know Martin Luther also uh, believed that thought played a prominent role in depression. In fact, he wrote in one of his letters on the subject, um, and actually he, he kind of described several tendencies as specialists today recognize. One in particular uh, is known as cognitive errors. You know, that, that time when depressed people only think about the things that support their negative assumptions. Right? I see a lot of heads going up and down. And so Luther also recognized that during bouts of depression, we tend to make small problems seem a lot bigger than they really are. And we frequently anticipate the worst possible outcome. 
Uh, And Luther said that for him, uh, solitude magnified those problems. Uh, You know, in fact, I would even be willing to say that's why David wrote uh, today, for in death there's no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Now, now some folks have wrongly suggested here that maybe David uh, was uncertain about life after death, but, you know, the testimony of this and other psalms and of the whole rest of the Old Testament really uh, would show how inaccurate that was. You see, David wasn't doubting heaven. David's talking about the self-imposed isolation we put on ourselves when we're depressed, when we close ourselves off from God and from other people. Uh, You know, those times when we're so down... Uh, that we're as good as dead to ourselves and everybody else around us. Uh, It's those times when we so entomb ourselves in our own thoughts that uh, we don't want to go out and we don't want to go to church and we don't want to go see anybody and we definitely don't want to have anybody come see us Uh, when we are in effect like the living dead, physically and and spiritually in the graveyard of our everyday lives. And in fact, in his uh, exegesis on Psalm 6, a man known as the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who also suffered from severe bouts of depression, wrote in his commentary on this verse. He said, Churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. And all of that uh, meaning that as hard as it seems when you're depressed, don't die to the world. Don't lock yourself away. Because God uses other believers as his agent of comfort in those dark times. That's why David wrote in today's text, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Uh, You know, David's saying here, when I feel like this, I only want other believers around me. I only want to be with folks who will remind me of the goodness of God and of his love for his children. That's what we need when we're depressed. And we need to be a source of that same comfort to others when they are. In fact, Luther advised uh, one person that he wrote to, he said, Dear one, cease relying on and pursuing your own thoughts. Listen to other people who are not subject to this temptation. Give the closest attention to what they say and let our words penetrate your heart. Thus God will strengthen and comfort you by means of our words. You see, Luther believed that godly believers can help one another. And as a church, we need to take that more seriously. You see, he knew that godly company serves several purposes. It affords an opportunity to receive a different and brighter perspective on life. In some severe cases, it serves as a precaution against the dangers of suicide. It provides an opportunity for good, clean, wholesome fun. You know, that's one thing I love about Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was definitely no stick in the mud, right? I mean, Luther repeatedly recommended playing games and and joking and enjoying entertainment. Uh, And he reminded Christians, as he put it, that proper and honorable pleasure with good and God-fearing people is pleasing to God. Because, you know, ultimately, Luther was a realist. He recognized that severely depressed people sometimes plunge so deep into despair that they need the intervention of people who genuinely care about him. Kind of like his, uh, his wife Katie cared and loved for him. You know, uh, the Luthers viewed marriage as kind of a school for growing in godliness. Uh, and both of them took God very seriously. And they kind of knew how to, to correct and to console each other when one of them was getting off track. Uh, and, and I love this little anecdote. I don't know how historical it is, but I, I like it anyway. 
Uh, one particular occasion said that Luther spent three days in a black depression uh, over something that had gone wrong in the church. And uh, on the third day of it, Katie came downstairs dressed in mourning clothes. You know how in the old days people would dress in black or in, in purple. Uh, and when he saw her, Luther asked, uh, are you going to a funeral? Who died? God, she said. And Luther jumped up out of his chair to rebuke her. He said, what do you mean by saying God is dead? God can't die. And she said, well, the, the way you've been acting the last few days, I was sure he had, and uh, I wanted to join you in mourning. <laughs> but you see, he got the message, right? He got the message. She's a pretty sharp lady. He got the point, and that was exactly what Luther needed to hear, and sometimes so do we, because brothers and sisters, God is not dead. He sees our sadness. He knows our despair. And when we experience those things, we can pray confidently in the words of Psalm 6, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And how do we know that? We know that because, as I said at, at uh, Pat's memorial on Thursday, we have a God that knows our hearts and feels our pain. And better yet, we have a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, who didn't sit idly by and watch the world go to hell. He did something about it. He did something about it even though it cost Him His life. And if you claim by faith that Jesus' death on the cross was for you and in your place, you can look forward with hope too because of what our Savior and our Lord was willing to pay on our behalf and it wasn't an easy road. In fact, we talked about it in Sunday school. If you remember, Isaiah prophesied some 700 years before Christ was born, prophesied that Christ would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that bought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because of that we can be assured that in whatever we face. Jesus understands our weakness and our suffering. He understands our greatest times of temptation and despair. Uh, and it's because he traveled that same road, yet without sin. And so I, I, I guess that's the answer to our opening question, isn't it? Our question of, is it wrong for Christians to be depressed? Well, it's only wrong if it was wrong for Christ. Right? So we know firsthand the trials and the heartaches that he faced. Uh, one so intense that Luke tells us he sweat drops of blood. So if you find yourself in that dark night of the soul today... Take heart, you're in good company. Good company with Moses and Elijah and David and Luther and Spurgeon. Uh, and know in the words of David that the Lord hears your plea, that he accepts your prayer, but he didn't stop there. He sent you an answer. Not in a, a card or an email or a, a phone call full of consoling words, but a flesh and blood answer in the form of brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church to walk alongside of you. But even more, in the person of his son who not only walked the dark roads of this life beside us, but actually stepped into them with us. So in those moments uh, when we cry out, Lord, how long? He can answer back, I'm here. I'm right here. 
and I'll be here with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a refuge in, in good times and in bad. We ask you now, Lord, to bring your peace and your comfort to those who face days sometimes filled with pain and depression. We ask you, Lord, to move every heart that's here today, if there are those who don't know you as your Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the power of your presence. And we ask you, Lord, all of us, that you would help us to realize that through you there is joy and the promise of everlasting peace through Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.